0: Only the biggest adversities will reveal your true self. This is the uh, meme wisdom of the internet for the week. Only the biggest adversaries—I'm ad, ad, sorry—only the biggest adversities will reveal your true self. Now, the meme maker uh, clearly, by the the character and the image that he puts on here, he he expects. Uh, for me to find in these words encouragement. To, to find that, that in the midst of great adversity I will find greatness in my true self. That it is the, the, uh, the crucible of adversity. The crucible of suffering that will reveal the depth of the strength of, that I have inside myself. The problem is, is that a month and a half into this quarantine thing not sure that there's that much to find, right? Like, I'm not sure that we as a people uh, have much to find, right? Like, when this adversity started, you heard a lot of people talking about, you know, how it would bring out the resolve and the strength of, of humanity, but it feels like my experience is that we talk a lot more about our haircuts or the lack thereof than any real strength, right? Like, I mean, I just, just this week I saw like a whole Seth Meyers bit about his hairdresser and how he misses his hairdresser, right? We, I've seen countless photos of people with their uh, home haircuts that they've applied to themselves or someone in their house has, has given them, right? I've seen uh, protesters standing in the streets saying, I need a haircut written on their sign, right? Like, if you would have asked me at any point other prior to this week in my life, if someday I would see protesters standing out in the street chanting, I need a haircut, I would have laughed, right? That's a ridiculous. It's so petty. It's so simple. It's so small. But it's not really haircuts that they're protesting, Right? Now, as I bring up these protests, some of, some of you are going to easily and, and quickly dismiss them and, and discount them because uh, uh, contempt is, is perhaps the easiest expression to feel, right? That there is something so grievously dangerous, right? So disrespectful to those who are working to stop the transmission of the disease, to have these mass gatherings of people uh, who could easily pass the disease from one another. It might look, uh, and it is, extremely petty or, or tone deaf, right? When the image of protesters uh, in, in a city like ours is, is people who have had such grievous opposition that they had to hold up signs that said, I am a man, right? I am a human being. I deserve dignity. It seems pretty petty uh, to then replace that image with, I need a, a haircut. But, but... Contempt is a little too easy of a word because, you see, what's really going on in those people is, is that they are afraid. They're afraid of the suffering that they are experiencing, whether that is a haircut that they don't like or whether that is a lost job or whether that is a, uh, the fear of a, uh, a tyrannical government taking and, and seizing control. And on that level, I think they're pretty relatable, right? Because the, the very worst suffering, the suffering that, that impacts you the most, the suffering that gets you up off of your feet and out into the street to protest is not the suffering that is necessarily the most severe, but it's the, the suffering that's the closest to home. It's a suffering uh, that, that you feel in your own life experience that matters more to you than the severity of suffering from afar. That's why starving children in Africa mean very little to you when your own stomach is growling at 11 a.m. We can't help it but be consumed by our sufferings. We can't help but be consumed by the fear that we can't get away from them, that we can't get past them. And so for several folks who have generally lived privileged lives, this is the first time that they're systematically being prevented from finding work, being systematically prevented from going to the restaurants and shows and sports games that they would want to be, that they're systematically being prevented from being with the people that they want to be, and it makes us afraid. Maybe not uh, the kind of fear that you would Uh, clearly identify as such in yourself, but it is a fear that drives us, a fear that makes us want to get away at all costs. As we come to this text, we come to to the, the kinds of suffering of Jesus that are the most intimate, the most close, the most painful, both in severity and in proximity, Right? Jesus has not led an easy life. He has encountered sufferings of many kinds. But here, here we find Jesus in the very crux. The very crux of the, the threat of death. The, the very crux of his dignity being stripped away from him. In the crux of having people speak ill of him and twisting his words and, and misconstruing about him. It is here where we get to watch what happens when God himself experiences the adversity? When God himself ex- experiences the suffering of this world? But the thing that you've discovered pretty quickly in this text is that Jesus is not alone in the suffering. Jesus is in this three way tug of war, but it becomes pretty quickly that none of the three people, the the Jewish leaders as as a unit, the Pilate himself or Jesus, it's pretty clear that none of these three people want to be there. All three of them are there against their will to some extent or another. And so while we might Uh, to talk about the suffering of the Jewish leaders or to talk about the suffering of Pilate is almost laughable in comparison to the severity of what Jesus was facing. Their suffering is not absent either. And I think that that John gives us this robust uh, narrative, this robust story so that we could identify Uh, by juxtaposition, right, that they serve as the the literary foil, if you would, to Jesus. How it is that they encounter and deal with the pressures that have been placed upon them in this moment so that we can understand and see just how differently Jesus responds to the fears and the pressures of this moment. So we're going to look this morning... At, at two th- simple things. One is what Jesus is not moved by, and then what Jesus is moved by. Well, first, what do we learn about Jesus is we learn that Jesus is not moved by fear. Jesus is not uh, moved to, to action. He's not moved to words. He's not moved uh, to 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 respond to his sufferings because of his fear of suffering. He's not trying to get away from the suffering that he is encountering, but everyone else is. Everyone else is desperately trying to avoid the suffering because to fear suffering is a human nature. It's human. It's the natural response. To avoid or to ignore or to get away from. It's like when you accidentally touch a hot frying pan, right? Your your instant reflex is to pull away. So that is with humankind. And to prove that point, he introduces us to this man, Pilate. Pilate, in the beginning of our story, we find him in a house, but it is not his house. He had come to Jerusalem and come more than likely begrudgingly. He had to come because these Jews somehow could not manage to get through a, a festival or a gathering on their own without him coming to, to babysit them. And so he had left his his home and had come and set up a temporary headquarters there in the city of Jerusalem to deal with these insolent Jewish people, these Uh, subjects who just could not seem to get along and his contempt for them has only grown just yesterday they had come to him begging for for soldiers that he could that they could use to go arrest this dangerous criminal this this uh dangerous insurrectionist jesus and so uh he had Uh, allowed them to do that but now at the crack of dawn they were making noise out in the street making him come outside to come talk to them like who did they think they were who did they think they are having the gall to come at the crack of dawn and presume that that i he Pilate would come do their bidding for them He was the governor of them, not the other way around. But as he comes out, he makes sure that he will make a point to to let them know who is really in charge. They come and they bring this man, but he, uh, he says to them, what accusation do you bring? And they're furious, they're infuriated. You know what this is. We've already tried them in our courts. We don't need, we're just here for you to mete out the punishment. But he wants to make them say it. He wants them to to make them say, we need you. We can't do it on our own. He wants to put them in their place. And so he says, well, then I will need to try him. Rather than accept their verdict, he himself will will come and bring him into the house and, and make the Jewish leaders sweat a little bit. Make them feel like their months of planning to arrest and, and, and remove this man have been for not. Make them fear and threat the threat of his authority. And so he brings Jesus in to question him, but then a new fear comes up. Because as soon as he starts to talk to Jesus, he finds out, This man is not at all a dangerous criminal. This man is not at all an insurrectionist, as they say. He is not attempting to throw off the Roman rule at all. He quickly discovers, is this man delusional? Maybe. Is he an idealist? Definitely. I mean, the guy tried to start giving Pilate a, a lesson about what truth, like that mattered at all to him. What mattered was staying alive. What mattered was staying in power. And so he could all of a sudden realize that he had gotten himself into a very tricky spot. How can he get out of it? Because if he, on the one hand, acquiesces to the Jews and gives them the guilty verdict that they. Want then they will uh, become enabled and view him as as a puppet that they could control, and he can't have that. But at the same time, if he lets Jesus go, if he understands that he is not a threat, then he might incite the very kind of a violent uprising that he was there to squash. The kind of uproar that his superiors in Rome would almost certainly hear about. What would he do? The kind of suffering, the kind of pressures that are put on him from both sides start to close in and he's afraid of making a misstep. He may be trapped, but though he's not pinned yet. So Pilate concocts a different plan. He says, uh, I may be trapped, but I'm not pinned yet. So he decides to try and, and, and play it down the middle, right? He tries to pit the Jews against themselves. He says, well, I'll, I'll do this. I'll threaten to release a, a dangerous criminal, a really dangerous criminal. And that will force the Jews to acknowledge the fact that they have, have brought this man on a political ploy. So he threatens to release a criminal. And it, just for good measure, give Jesus a, a good beating, right? To shut him up for a few days, And then maybe, you know, he can get around to breakfast. But what Pilate didn't expect was the escalation. The escalation that the Jews brought was they responded that his beating, the crown of thorns, was not enough. He needed to be put to death. Crucify him. Crucify him. That didn't scare Pilate, but something else they did too. In verse 8, he says that Pilate was even more afraid. Why? Because the Jews had just told him that Jesus proclaimed himself to be a son of God. Now, to the Jews, that was blasphemy. But to a, a pagan Roman, he all of a sudden was dealing with a man who claimed to be divine. And he was superstitious enough. He was scared enough of the gods to know that he did not want to be meddling with anyone who might just possibly be a divine man. And so the clenches of his suffering, the clenches of the pressures upon him build. The Jews are making more extreme and more violent demands, but the threat of of convicting him and and giving them what they want grows all the more. He didn't want uh, to give the Jewish leaders what they wanted and face the wrath of the gods. But all the more the clamor of the crowd, the racket The riot that he might incite becomes even stronger. And then they come with the dirtiest trick of them all. The Jews say in verse 12, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. A.k.a. we have a way of letting Caesar know who is loyal to him in this province. And if you let this man go, we know that it's not you blackmail, threats. And all of a sudden, Pilate finds himself in a moment that is simply insufferable, a moment that he is desperately trying to find a way out of, a moment he is trying to escape because he fears enabling the Jews because he thinks that will make his suffering worse. He fears uh, angering the wrath of the gods because he fears that that will make his suffering worse. Worse, but he fears the unforgiving wrath of Caesar, perhaps even more. What was he to do but to let them bear the blame and be done with it? Conviction of sedition was his charge, and he found a way to get rid of his fear, to escape the moment of pressure he was in, but it came at a cost. Because you see, fear is a terrible slave driver in the midst of a crisis. You see, while Pilate styled himself to be a ruler, a person with authority, a person in charge, and he began this effort in an attempt to, to stamp down and mark, make his mark upon these Jewish leaders, that he was in control, and yet he found himself taking orders from his subjects rather than ordering his subjects. He styled himself to be a judge. To be the one who, who spoke with clarity and who spoke with finality and yet here he finds himself undermining his own verdict. A verdict he's given on three occasions saying he is innocent and I will do nothing to him. And yet here he is condemning him to die. Fear drove him to become something he never imagined he would be. We don't have time this morning to talk, uh, uh, to go through the Jewish leaders and, and the pressures that were put upon them, but we see the same telltale signs that fear was controlling them. You see their, their defensiveness, right? The way that they changed their story. He's an, an enemy of Rome. No, he's an enemy of the Jewish people. No, he's an enemy of Rome again. You can see the way that they threaten. Violence to 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 Pilate—the way they threaten violence and chant for violence from the crowd—we see this sit telltale sign that fear controlled them because they contradict themselves. Way back when, when they decided that they would pursue putting Jesus to death, they did it because they wanted uh, to protect the Jewish people from the threat of Roman oppression. You remember that all the way back in chapter 11, they said, if this man lives, then Rome will crack down upon us and become our masters. And yet by the end, when fear had run its course in them, they were chanting, saying, we have no king but Caesar. They started trying to get away from the suffering of Caesar and they ended up professing their undying loyalty to Caesar. I think it's human nature. I think it's human nature that when when the vices of uh, the vice grips of pain and suffering, when the vice grips of of um, opposition and adversity come upon us, that we want to avoid and and get away from, and at all costs. And so there's any number of different ways that philosophies and religions have dealt with the problem of suffering, but most of them fall into one of those two camps. Either you betray, uh, you betray reality to try and make friends with suffering, right? So you accept that, that you can't change fate or, or some of the Eastern religions that you treat, uh, that you treat suffering like it's some sort of uh, illusion or mirage that you can just get past. Perhaps turning to karma, right, and dealing with the suffering by saying, well, it's just justice, and there's nothing that can be done. We either make friends with suffering, or we're like Pilate and the Jewish leaders as we try to run away. When we say suffering is meaningless, suffering has no purpose, all that we can do is avoid it and get away. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus, whatever you can say about how Jesus responds in this text, you cannot say that he responds with that kind of defensiveness, does he? He doesn't belittle. He doesn't coerce, He doesn't make a scene. He doesn't try to shift blame. He doesn't uh, change and move and bend or break from his stated goal at the beginning to his stated goal at the end because Jesus is not directed. Jesus is not moved by fear. And yet we live in a world in the moment of suffering in which uh, there is plenty of fear to go around and the the pressures of this world will try to to recruit you into their battle. Maybe you uh, have known a, a politician who is like Pilate, whose care for his own skin far outweighs his concern for truth or justice. Perhaps you have known a, a pastor or a religious leader who, who tries to, to deal with the uncomfortable suffering right by shifting blame or, or seeking an easy explanation that it is because of this sin or that sin, right? Because it is you have not prayed enough, you have not been faithful enough, right who, who tries to, to find a way out from the suffering by getting away from it or by becoming friends. With it, But Jesus does not do either of those two things. And so we start to feel here in this text uh, an, awkward, an awkward contradiction. Because John has already made it clear that his goal for us is that we would react, that we would experience suffering in the same way that Jesus does. But the way that Jesus does it seems to be fundamentally against the human nature that every civilization has ever no is it possible let's hold on to that question because we've not yet seen what does move jesus we said that jesus is not moved by fear but if not by fear then what I think it's clear from this text that Jesus is moved by the promise of redemption. Jesus is moved by the promise of the coming kingdom. And so he is 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 like a firefighter who charges into the burning home, right? He has no time to consider. Uh, he has no thought of, of fear. He has no thought of his safety because he has an objective. He has a goal that he is working toward. He has lives that he must say. And so rather than than, uh, orienting himself and being moved by fear, Jesus is moved by truth. Like when you read this interaction that Jesus has with Pilate, you might be tempted at first blush to think, boy, he's being a little cryptic, right, or elusive. But I think it's quite the opposite. I think Jesus is committed, even in this fraud trial, to try to make sure that Pilate understands Pilate asked him, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus goes, well, I want you to understand what I'm talking about. So when you say those words, what do you mean? Like when you say king of the Jews, is that something that your conception of a king? What you think of or, 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 or what you have seen or, or are you just repeating the words of somebody else? Because if we're going to say that I'm a king, we need to understand what kind of king I am. Because he makes clear in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. So if what you're asking me is, am I trying to overthrow the Roman Empire? The question's no. If you're trying to, to ask me, am I trying to lead people into a full experience with reality, into a way of orienting their life, then the answer is yes. Because Jesus is committed to the truth. He says, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. See, Jesus is interested in dealing with reality, not with the struggle to get away from suffering. He makes his defense, his legal defense, but it's not to try to get save his own skin, but to reveal the sham of injustice that was being done to him. Jesus is moved by the truth of the coming of God's kingdom, not by the fear of what will happen to him, because Jesus is reassured by God's power. See, after, Je- after Pilate had given Jesus his first beating, his whipping, the, the, the crunching of the thorns piercing his head and, and blood pouring down upon him and, and the beating by hands, it is natural and it is normal for Jesus to hate, to respond in spite, to flex his muscles in anger or to crumble under the weight of pressures put upon him. But Jesus, the text tells us, is silent. When Pilate says uh, to him, when Pilate It says, where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. It's so unnatural. It's so strange that we have to wonder, where does this response from Jesus come from? But then in verse 11, we find out. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. You see, Pilate, you feign, you fake control, authority, and power, but God retains it. And he retains it for a purpose. See, Jesus knows and he speaks and he says to Pilate, you have authority and you have control in this moment, but you have authority in this moment. You've been placed in this moment for a specific reason by somebody who's a whole lot more powerful than you are. Jesus, who has just told Pilate his purpose and what God was doing through him was to bear truth into the world. To, to bear the, the the reality of heaven and earth intermeshed to the world. To, to strike the evil and suffering and death of this world at its root. And to support it as it awaits the dying of those vicious veins. Jesus is reassured by God's power that the coming of redemption is real. So when we ask, is it... Possible to suffer like Jesus did? Is it possible to to avoid the fear of suffering that is human nature? And at one answer, we can say no. Not when you're by yourself, not when you're of your own strength. But on the other level, we can say yes. Because it is Jesus's ambition, it is Jesus's purpose in the world to bring truth to people. And that means you, and that means me. Right, if, if, if Jesus is just a, a model, if Jesus is just an example of enduring suffering, then we're screwed, I hate to tell you. Because we're not going to be any different than Pilate. We're not going to be any different than the priests. We're not going to be any different than the protesters on the side of the road. We're going to live out of fear. But if the resurrection is true, if Jesus went through the worst of hell could throw at him and come back out the other side in power, well then we have some hope, right? Because if if the one who did not bend under the harassments and the accusations and the sufferings of this world, if the one who did not break from the unjust verdict placed upon him, if he does not bend if he did not bend then he does not bend. If he is alive, then he is with us now, and his rod and his staff secure us. If Jesus, in the moment of great trial and suffering, the trial and suffering that sat upon his head, as his head throbbed in pain, if he did not break from such pressure, and he lives with us still, then that means something. Because the one who did not break does not break as he walks with us towards our salvation. So we don't need and we don't live according to the fear and the, 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 the ignorance of suffering. We don't try to escape suffering by definition because there is someone who has already walked through the path and promised to walk with us. Jesus is moved forward in this time of suffering by the prospect of accomplishing redemption. And we can move forward in our sufferings because we are moved by the receiving of that redemption which Jesus brought. We're not alone. We have been moved by a God who walks through flame And darkness to find us. We pass through the fire because he holds us in his arms and carries us through. So we don't need to give in to the vices and the recruitment strategies of of politician or preacher. We don't need to give in to the despair of our hearts. Because we have one who conquers suffering for us. So it is undoubtedly true. It is undoubtedly true that the moments of intense personal suffering and moments of of intense trial do expose us. They bring something out of us. They bring out a, a reality which we often do not see in the course of life. But what do they bring out? Did they bring out the kind of contradictions, the kinds of violence, the kinds of contempts that are natural to those who respond from fear? Or do those trials bring out in us a longing for the coming kingdom of God, for the reassurance of his redemption, to the crying of his name all the more? Because you will respond out of one of those, you will respond out of fear, or you will respond out of clinging to the cross of Jesus. Those are the ways that we deal with suffering. The radical difference that Jesus experienced in his sufferings gives us hope. It gives us confirmation that his is a real path, that joining with him is a a real plausibility in our world, that it is not pie in the sky, but it is a different way. A better way a way that leads us to the fullness of life so if our moment of suffering is to reveal our true colors then let our find let us find ourselves bathed in the blood of christ because he bled so that we could find truth and he rose that we might live with him pray with me father we come this morning as people who need to be reminded of what is real. We come as people who need to be reassured. We come as people whose instincts tell us to to run from suffering out of our reflex of fear. But Lord, we hear your voice as you say, I am with you. Lord, help us to believe your voice instead of our reflexes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.